there are times when when it seems like 10 years or 20 years worth of work happens in a year or six months. And, and what can account for such rapid advances? Uh, th- this is the work of revival or spiritual awakening. Now, it is important to say that the kingdom of God normally, if we say it, it advances incrementally, step by step, brick by brick, piece by piece. And we do not despise that normal incremental growth of God's kingdom. Nevertheless, we glory in these seasons of rapid advancement, and we say, Lord, send them. Appointment Ministries Podcast Network, strength for today's pastor. Here's your host, Bill Holdridge. Bill is the director of Poiman Ministries, which is a team of former longtime senior pastors who are available to strengthen pastors, to strengthen churches. Welcome to podcast number 41, Strength for Today's Pastor, and I am excited to have with me today Pastor David Guzik. David and I, well, mostly David, is going to be speaking about the subject of revival. David is a student of revival. He had a relationship and uh, with Dr. Uh, J. Edwin Orr and his massive studies on that subject, and it's a, an area of great passion for David. So I thought I'd reach out to David and ask him to join the program, and he has graciously accepted. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, Bill, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Congratulations at making it past the number 40 in your podcast episode. I'm glad to be here for episode number 41. <laughs> you're welcome. Maybe some significant about 41. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's just dive right into the subject, David. I mean, I, you're all over the place. You've served in Western Europe. You've served in probably most of the states in the United States and various parts of the world. You've seen a lot. You've observed a lot. You've studied a lot. And, and so you're a, a very good guy to ask this question of. But here's the question. Uh, you know, revival is is a misunderstood and can be a misunderstood concept. So maybe you could give us a definition. What is your definition of revival? Well, I, I would describe it like this, and and this is a little bit of a difficulty because uh, as I've done my reading through the scholarship and just through the observations of the individuals involved with revival through the years. I don't think there's any one universally accepted definition of revival. Um, I think that people define it a little bit differently and categorize it a little bit differently. Um, for example, Bill, some people make the distinction between revival and spiritual awakening. And what they would describe as revival is revival is what happens among the church, among the people of God. Um, spiritual awakening is what happens among the community at large that does not know Jesus Christ yet, has not yet come into relationship with him. So revival is when God's spirit is poured out upon the church and there's a remarkable season of advance and transformation from a kingdom perspective among the church. And then spiritual awakening is what happens when God's spirit is poured out upon the community and there's a remarkable season of advance in God's kingdom and transformation in the community, mainly resulting in people being saved and genuine being added to the community of God's people. So uh, some people make the distinction between revival and spiritual awakening. Some people uh, categorize it all under the term revival. I, I don't know that it really matters. It's just kind of 
good to be aware that there's at least two aspects of that that we're talking about, what happens among God's people and then what happens among the community. Okay, very interesting. So as it relates to what God does among God's people, revival, something that has already become alive, is becoming alive again. It's being revived. That's the idea, right? Exactly. And as it's been said, and I think well said, is that something can't be revived unless it's vived to begin with. Mm -hmm. So revival presumes that there was spiritual life at one time, and uh, that spiritual life is being um, uh, restored, strengthened, uh, a real season of advance. See, that's kind of what we have, Bill, is, is we have, I don't want to speak like a scientist or sociologist, but I could put it like this. We have the data. The data tells us, and we have this data both from the Bible, uh, and then we have this data from history, that there are times when there is remarkable advance in the work of the kingdom of God. Uh, the number of lives transformed, the number of institutions impacted, the number of uh, the, the, the degree of cultural transformation. There are times when, when it seems like 10 years or 20 years worth of work happens in a year or six months. And, and what can account for such rapid advances? Uh, th this is the work of revival or spiritual awakening. Now, it is important to say that the kingdom of God normally, if we say it, it advances incrementally, step by step, brick by brick, piece by piece. And we do not despise that normal incremental growth of God's kingdom. Nevertheless, we glory in these seasons of rapid advancement, and we say, Lord, send them. So when that happens, um, and when there is a massive growth in the kingdom, David, do you think that there's a relationship between the revival of God's people and the extension of that, perhaps, into the communities and into the nations? Yes. And again, if I can say, looking at the historical evidence, both biblically and in church history, maybe there's times when a community has had a great harvest of souls and transformation without there first being a work among God's people. But I would say that's very rare, if it's happened at all. The repeated pattern we see is that God first works among his people, uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a radical getting right with God among the people of God. And that's something we need to talk about, you know, kind of this initial stage of the Bible. And then uh, it's just a real outpouring of life and vitality. The, the, I'm not going to say it's an absolute law because God can do whatever he wants. But the normal principle is that God does that among his people first, and then it goes into the community. You can even see this on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You know, there was a remarkable advance in the kingdom of God when 3,000 people were converted uh, in response to what God did through the preaching of Peter on Pentecost. Now, that itself was preceded by a remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people, the 120 who were in the upper room. So it just seems to be a consistent pattern, though we wouldn't regard it as like an absolute law. But there would be um, 
a definite connection between the work of the Spirit in God's people and what happens in the community if that work of the Spirit in God's God's people occurs. Like Jesus was very clear to the disciples, as we both know, that they were not to depart from Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. He didn't want them out trying to reach the world without the baptism of the Holy Spirit without that uh, Pentecost experience. So there is a connection in that way. I can I can really see that. That's that's such a great point. And then Absolutely. but it is but it is possible since God is sovereign and he can do anything he wants and he's able to do anything he wants to do that there could be a separate move of God in the communities at large apart from a significant work. Have you ever seen it happen in reverse where there's a significant work in the communities or in the nations at large which affects the vitality and the revival of the church? Okay, I have to say I haven't seen it. Well, let, let me let me reminisce this a little bit. You you could almost say that in some measure, this is what happened, Bill, with the with the Jesus movement revival. Now, there's a lot we could talk about that with the Jesus movement of the late 1960s, early 1970s. And, and there's, I think there's a legitimate discussion to be had as to uh, how much of a revival that actually was. And that's a great thing to discuss, but it certainly in some measure was a revival. And you found that a lot of churches were spurred to... Um, Get right with God, so to speak, and be very open to move the Holy Spirit because they saw so many young people coming to Christ mm. and knew that the Holy Spirit was at work. So really, we might find an example in something as recent as the Jesus movement to say, yeah, there can be that action where, um, at least for some congregations, uh, it, it comes from the community first and then, uh, Congregations are inspired to to really seek God. Mm. Well, that's that's almost like catching up with what we're seeing the Spirit doing elsewhere, and saying, "Boy, you know, if that's happening there, it should happen here." Or how can we get into the jet stream of what God is doing? Maybe that's what that is. So much about revival and spiritual awakening, Bill. Uh, people can misunderstand it. People can twist it. But I, there, it's undeniable that there's something contagious about these seasons of revival and spiritual awakening, where when people hear the reports about what God has done uh, somewhere else in a remarkable way, it makes them open for what God may want to do for them. And, and you could say it increases their faith for God may do among them. And, and God often does remarkable things. That makes sense. So as we look at a community, suppose a community of maybe 500,000 people within the space of a few years, all of a sudden now has four mega churches that are 10,000 uh, people and above. A lot of Christians in a community like that will say, well, revival has come to our community. Is that true or is it not true? How would you answer that? Oh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay, just the, the if I could say, the data points that you gave me, to me, that's not evidence of revival. Because number one, those four megachurches uh, may have drawn their people mostly from people who were already Christians and uh, just in other churches or smaller churches in the community. 
just because a, a few churches in a community experience rapid growth doesn't really mean that there's been revival in the community because those may just be people attracted from other churches. So that, that itself isn't necessarily an argument. And, and here's the thing. Revival and church growth are not the same. They're not the same at all. Now, true revival and spiritual awakening uh, is definitely connected with the growth of churches. There's no denying that. But churches can grow uh, without there being true revival in the midst. So we do have to separate a few things out there. That makes sense. So as we look at revival and the, the need of the church to be revived, since that's what revival is, we're not talking about awakening in the community. Uh, what are some of the, the 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 areas in which the Spirit of God really touches people and a congregation when revival visits? And we're not ta- I'm not talking about the experiences, you know, falling down or like in Jonathan Edwards' day or Charles Finney's day or uh, right. Pentecostal revivals or anything. I'm talking about what actually happens inside of and within the people during a, a typical revival? Yeah, that, that's a tremendous question. And um, I, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, J. Edwin Orr. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind, uh, Bill, I want to correct something you said in the introduction. Please do. Uh, about my relationship with J. Edwin Orr. I never had a personal relationship with the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. Uh, he passed away in the late 1980s when I was still relatively young in ministry. And I was privileged to hear him speak in person a couple of times. And I think I might have introduced myself and shook his hand uh, to him. But I, I never had a personal relationship. My relationship has been with his uh, wife, uh, his widowed wife, and with his daughter and his sons. Uh, after the passing of the late Dr. J. Edwin Moore. Matter of fact, his wife passed away just about a month and a half ago. Uh, she was a hundred years old, just a few weeks shy of her 101st birthday. She graduated to glory wow. and uh, went to heaven. But um, I came to a great interest in the ministry of Dr. J. Edwin Moore, and through that, I developed a relationship with his family that I'm very grateful for. And what I tried to do was compile all the audio and video and text resources of Dr. J. Edwin Orr and try to make them available on a website and other places. But as I was doing that, I discovered a message that he preached. And Bill, actually, this was the last sermon that he ever preached. And we can say that categorically because he went to heaven later that night. Um, He was preaching on the East Coast at a uh, Baptist conference that was interested in reviving spiritual awakening. And the name of the message that he, the title for the message, I should say, that he preached was, Revival is like Judgment Day. And in that message, which is interesting because he, he was an itinerant preacher, and so he often repeated sermons. It's, you know, nothing unusual or, of course, wrong with that. But this was the first and obviously the last time that he ever preached this particular message. Mm-hmm. And the the focus of that message was to say that when revival comes among God's people, in its initial stage, it's not pleasant. It is a radical, even wrenching, cleansing of sin from among God's people. And it is a, um, it feels like judgment day. 
because people are compelled to confess their sin. They're compelled to get things right with God. And the initial stage of revival among God's people is that radical cleansing and confession and getting things right. Then there's often an outpouring of a great sense of joy and and um, satisfaction in one's relationship with God. But it seems like in modern definitions and estimations of revival, everybody just wants to skip to that second step. Uh, it's as if they feel like the church has nothing to repent of. There's no cleansing necessary among God's people. And that's something we would just pretty strenuously object to and say there, there still needs to be what Peter spoke about. Judgment needs to begin at the house of God. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to bring that verse up. So thanks for bringing that in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, it just so uh, uh, aptly applies, does it not? It does. Um, yeah. We, we need to to get right with God first among God's people and then look at, for God to spread that about um, in the community. That's a great definition and a great description of what happens. Revival is not pleasant at first. Kind of made me think as you were talking about the person who is running in a race and they think that their pace is great. They think they're on pace to win or maybe break a record. And then they mm -hmm. realize they've got this huge backpack full of boulders on their back. And when they realize that and they get rid of the backpack and get rid of the boulders, now they're free and, yeah. and they're able to run the race with the kind of uh, joy that is set before them. As it says in Hebrews 12, that's kind of what it seems like to me happens don't you think, during a, a, a real revival? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th this is, I think, is actually a significant hindrance to true revival among God's people today. Is built, Most people understand revival today as being this, a season of spiritual excitement. Mm. And, Bill, who doesn't want a season of spiritual excitement? Everybody wants mm -hmm. that. But but that is not revival. Right. You can have a season of spiritual excitement whipped up by man in the soulish efforts that people put forth and have no revival at all. Um, and then you can also have revival, and you should have in this sense, where in its, in its initial stages, it doesn't feel exciting at all. It feels dreadful. God is cleansing his church and getting them right with him. But as long as people understand revival to be just a season of spiritual excitement and giddiness and, oh, isn't this wonderful? Well, I, I think it takes away from true revival. I've, I've often thought this, that people who perceive revival to be just a season of spiritual excitement, they pray for revival. But God sees their heart and their mind, and God recognizes that actually they don't want revival at all. They don't want a real cleansing of the church. Uh, they just want a little more excitement. And um, God sees not just the words they're praying, but the real heart, the real mind behind it. And God says, you, you don't even want revival. You don't even want the work I want to bring. What kind of things do you think are typically exposed by the Spirit within a person's heart during a time of revival? The Spirit is visiting 
the church, visiting God's people. Things are going to be repented of. They're going to be confessed. Things are going to be getting, you know, people are going to be getting right with God. What are some of the areas which you have seen or known about that are typically target areas of the Spirit? It is, it's quite common for hidden sin and corruption among God's people to just be made um, aware of and to be openly confessed and repented of. And I'm not saying that this has to go into great detail. If there's, you know, sordid sin, perhaps of a sexual or sensual nature, um, the, the details don't need to be exposed, but certainly the fact of it does. And it just be repented of. Here's something else that often is corrupt, is exposed, is a corruption among church leadership. There's a fascinating book that I would recommend to every one of your listeners. And Bill, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you've read it. Have you read the book By My Spirit by Jonathan Goforth? I have not. Well, I highly recommend. It's a fairly brief book. And he describes these mighty uh, times of revival, I believe in Korea, when he was serving there as a uh, missionary worker in the early part of the 20th century. And so much of this great outpouring of the spirit that they experienced was um, both in Chinese churches and in Korean churches, God getting a hold of these believers and church leaders confessing sexual impropriety, financial mismanagement and just, you know, embezzling and such. Um, they, they're confessing uh, grievous sins of criticism and backbiting against other leaders. And oftentimes it is among God's people just this radical cleansing of these sins that are real but often hidden in the midst. That, uh, that kind of connects me to... Um a book I've been reading recently that deals with the issue of offense among God's people. And, you know, we, we, we see that churches a lot of times grow significantly through transfer growth. And a lot of times that transfer growth in our experience as pastors is the result of somebody being offended by something or someone. And then they move on. They rather than go through necessary biblical steps of forgiveness and reconciliation, they remain offended and they move on to their next destination. And, and they'll have to repeat the process there because they didn't deal with it in the previous situation. I just think of that type of thing being so prevalent among God's people. And it needs to be, it needs to be cleansed from us. Yeah, it really does. And you know, it, especially in in the western world or let me say specifically it's not so much true in um europe as it is in north america or in any given community you you can have a number of of at least decent churches i mean whether or not they're great churches people can debate but at least they're decent churches well it makes it very easy for people just to kind of skip around from one of those decent churches to another and whatever sin they've committed, whatever problem that they've had in the prior churches, they just go on to the next church and pretend that it never even happened at their prior church. And uh, th- th- there is no idea that, no, we got to get this right. We've got to set this right in some way. And that's tragic. That That just delays anything that the Lord really wants to do in that person's life and through that person's ministry. It's really, really hard to watch. But we've seen it. Yes. We've seen it happen. And 
and you know, so the beat goes on. But that, these are the things that it, this, it, isn't it funny? <laughs> yeah, isn't it funny, Bill? Yeah, you see those people, and it's the strangest thing. They seem to have the same problems every church they go to. Yeah, isn't that the strangest yeah. thing? You know, because they they always think that the problem is the church yeah. or the leadership. Well, really, the problem's them, and they take themselves wherever they go. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of my favorite promises that I've been giving to congregations where I've been speaking recently, David, is is the promise, the absolute ironclad promise that they will be offended by someone if they are part of a church. Yes. It's going to happen. Yes. So the question isn't yes. whether it's going to happen. The question is, what are you going to do when it happens? And if you respond to it biblically and by the Spirit, it'll be a wonderfully strengthening thing for you and for your church. But if you reject it and move on and use some other excuse as your reason for leaving, then you're going to be carrying that weight with you and you're going to be at least damaging and at the most really greatly harming that new place that you go to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it, we've seen that happen time and time again. I agree with you completely. It's impossible, Jesus said, but that offenses should come. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's going to happen. Well, you know, uh, looking at revival from more of a macro sense, uh, some couple of questions that connect with different passages in my mind. But the uh, first one may be an obvious one. We've often heard Second Chronicles 7.14 as being the great promise that revival will happen. Um, can you wrap uh, your mind, well, not wrap your mind around it, your mind is already wrapped around it, but can you kind of unpack that a little bit, David? What does Second Chronicles 7.14 mean in its context, and how can it apply if it does apply to revival today? Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I see people talk about this passage, and of course this is the passage where God promises that if his people will humble themselves and pray and repent, God will visit them, and God will restore, and God will bring blessing upon them. It's, it's a remarkable promise. And, and I find it striking that the first reaction so many people have is, well, that doesn't apply to God's people today. That, that was given to Israel under the Old Covenant. We are not Israel under the Old Covenant. You can't take that passage and apply it to God's people today. Which, which i got to say, Bill, I... It strikes me as such a strange initial reaction to have to that passage. Because, first of all, Bill, we understand. I mean, you and I, we're, we hope to be men of God's word, and very biblically based. Mm -hmm. We understand completely that that's a promise made to Old Testament Israel uh, when they had kings that were appointed by God. And it was, to use a, a theological phrase, they were a theocratic kingdom. We understand that completely. But here's the thing, the promise that God will respond favorably to his people when they repent of their sin, when they humble themselves before him, is that promise less valid under the new covenant than it was under the old covenant? <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, it astounds me how people, their first reaction to that is say, that doesn't apply to us today because it was made to Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, we understand it was made to Israel in the Old Testament, but God is more favorably disposed towards us uh, in the New Covenant than it, he was, so to speak, I should say, 
because uh, I'm not trying to act that God was not favorably disposed to people under the old covenant. But what I'm saying is we have a greater grounds of confidence under the new covenant, not a lesser one. And so, yes, when God's people humble themselves, when God's people pray, when God's people repent, they should expect that God will move and act favorably in their regard. And, and this gets down to the to the uh, issue of revival, I think, in a very significant way. Mm-hmm. So that's where we'll end this episode of Strength for Today's Pastor. We've been listening to Pastor David Guzik on the subject of revival. David is known as a tremendous Bible student and expositional Bible teacher. A quick and easy way to access so much of David's work is to go to his website, EnduringWord.com. That's EnduringWord.com, E-N-D-U-R-I-N-G, Word.com. It's a goldmine for today's pastor and Christian. Hey, we'd like to ask you to send your feedback or questions on today's episode by writing to StrongerPastors at gmail.com. That's StrongerPastors at gmail.com. So let's join together and pray for revival. Amen. And let's not forget Maranatha. Strength for Today's Pastor is sponsored by Poyman Ministries. You can find us at poymanministries.com. That's spelled P-O-I-M-E-N ministries.com. If something in today's program prompts a question or desire to connect with us, or if you have a comment or a topic idea for a future episode, just shoot us an email at strongerpastors at gmail.com. That's strongerpastors at gmail.com. Until we meet again, may you continue to be a strengthened pastor.